This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Itachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out our podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash powerpulse. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me today, we have an old friend back again, and a new friend making a first appearance. I'm very pleased to welcome back Nika Kabule, who's a principal at Aligned Climate Capital, which is a climate-focused investment firm. Hi, Nika. Great to have you back. Hello. So excited to be here. So it's been a while since you were last on, wasn't it? I was looking, it was all the way back in August of 2021 that you were last here. Feels like the world has changed quite a bit since then. Oh, significantly. Yeah. <laughs> Now, for the benefit of people who might not have heard you back then, could you just tell us a little bit about Aligned Climate Capital? What do you do? Yeah, so at Aligned Climate Capital, we are investing in decarbonization for today. We have the perspective um, that for us to actively approach decarbonization, we need to take a portfolio approach. So there's some people who are working on really amazing tech that will be ready in five or 10 years. But in the meantime, there's proven technologies that are available to us today. So we're investing things like solar infrastructure, uh, startups that are, you know, accelerating the clean energy transition, infrastructural building efficiency, you name it. So it's been really great to see some of the technology that people maybe don't see as sexy, but we know that it works uh, really being deployed all over the country as a slogan has often been on this show in the past, deploy, deploy, deploy. That's the most important thing. And it's yeah, really interesting to hear about what you're doing on that school. And we're going to hear some more about it on the show. The other thing that you do, you're the founder of an organization called Green Tech Noir. Can you explain a little bit about that? What do you do? Yes. Yeah, so Green Tech Noir is a collective that's really focused on uplifting and elevating innovators, leaders, founders, policy folks, specifically Black people working in sustainability and climate. It's really hard work to do in general, but we know that the space has not been incredibly inclusive. So to create a network for people to learn about opportunities, to grow in the work that they're doing, and also create community with the other people who are building out um, systems change has been phenomenal. Yeah, that sounds like really worthwhile work to be doing. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Then also on the show, we have a new guest joining us for the first time, who is uh, Sam Scroggins. He's a director in the Power, Energy and Infrastructure Department at Lazard, the investment bank. Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, good morning, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to a, a really great discussion. Now, we always like to get a new guest on the show to talk a little bit about their career path, how they got into the energy business and the role they're now playing. With you, it's particularly interesting. I feel like you have a somewhat unconventional path uh, into working in energy. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. I joined Lazard in 2016, and I helped lead our energy transition and renewable energy financial advisory practice. And for those of your listeners that, that aren't familiar with Lazard, we are a 175-year-old global investment bank that provides financial advice to all manner of corporations and entities across across the globe, across all number of sectors. But before I joined Lazard, I was an attorney 
I practice renewable energy M&A and tax equity finance. And before that, I was a professional football player. So I played football for the Detroit Lions. Indeed. Do you find things you learned as a football player kind of useful and applicable to the energy business? I find things that I learned as a lawyer a little more useful and <laughs> applicable, but certainly, you know, certainly some of those, uh, those softer team dynamics really help. And in terms of Lazard, I mean, as you say, a very old, well-established name uh, in the investment banking business. In terms of profile with the general public, perhaps, and how many people might have come across you, one of the things you're quite famous for in the energy world is your levelized cost of energy, levelized cost of electricity analysis. Just want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So we have been publishing our levelized cost of energy analysis for 16 years. Seven years ago, we started publishing our levelized cost of storage analysis. And last year, we published our first iteration of our levelized cost of hydrogen analysis. The levelized cost of energy certainly gets the most publicity and is the most well-read across the globe. There are limitations to the reports, of course, but we think it's, it's the best-in-class LCOE across the world. And what are the messages and significance of that work? What does it show? So the levelized cost of energy over time has tracked the cost comparisons of renewable energy as compared to fossil fuel generation. And leading up to 2021, what you saw was pretty significant cost declines on a levelized basis for renewable energy technologies, particularly utility scale wind and solar as compared to fossil fuel generations. And there are a number of reasons that, that are driving that. I think relevant to the conversation we're having today, you know, starting in 2020, we started to see a flattening of that cost decline curve and, and even 21 and 22, what, what we are seeing is a slight increase. Now, the actual cost as an input is just one half of our levelized cost of energy analysis. The other half is the output. Rather, on an absolute basis, those costs for renewable energy technologies that have increased can be quite significant. On a comparative basis, renewables are still cost competitive. Right, got it. So look, you both work then, as we've been hearing, in different aspects of investment in low carbon energy. And that's the first topic I really want to get into today. Investment conditions, the state of the economy, have been very much dominating the news in recent months. We've had that surge in inflation coming out of the pandemic. Inflation really surged around the world, driven in large part by energy prices, you know, the prices of oil and gas going up very sharply, but not only driven by that, lots of other things have been driving up prices. And as you say, that's had clear impacts in the energy industry as well. And although inflation has recently dropped back a bit, it is still very high. In the US, just look at the numbers, the uh, latest data show the current rate of consumer price inflation running at 8.2%, very high by standards of recent history, certainly. Partly as a result of that, interest rates have been on the rise. The US 30-year mortgage rate, for instance, that is almost at 7%, and that's its highest level since 2002. And that's just an example of really how interest rates are rising across the board. And at the same time, meanwhile, stock markets have been falling and the S&P 500 index is down 14% since August. Anytime you look at the news, there's reports of financial strains building all over the world. Look at what's been going on in the UK recently. You look at the stories coming out of China. 
many other countries around the world showing evidence of financial strain. It definitely feels like the global financial and economic outlook has been deteriorating. So for us on the energy gang, the big question is, what does that mean for the energy transition? And what does it mean for investment in low carbon energy in particular? And I really want to explore with both of you your thoughts on where all this is heading. I mean, Sam, maybe just to start with you, as I say, given that backdrop that I've just been sketching out in terms of the financial outlook, how do you see it affecting your business? Is this something which is starting to bite yet on investment in energy? The way that we're seeing that, Ed, flow through our financial advisory practice in the renewable energy sector is, is exactly as you've pointed out. We have seen around a 65% drop in public market transactions for renewable energy companies in the first half of 2022 as compared to the first half of 21. But what we have seen to counter that is increasingly active private market transaction uh, activity. The first half of 22 was a record high as compared to the first half of 21. Now, Q4 of 21, there was a significant amount of transaction activity. But the private markets, despite that backdrop that you've just laid out from a public markets perspective, do not seem to be slowing down for high-quality renewable energy investment opportunities. So that's interesting. So what do you think's going on there then? And to be clear about this, so this is private markets, as in this is non-listed securities, private equity, and so on, as opposed to securities listed on exchanges, right? That's exactly yeah, right. So why have they been doing better, do you think, than the public markets? Well, I don't know if it's doing better versus doing worse. It's that these companies are not able to access the public markets given the volatility that you've just covered. But these businesses are significant consumers of capital. And so there have been significant funds raised across infrastructure funds, across private equity funds, across venture capital funds. And by definition, those organizations have to put that capital to work. So in the absence of a healthy public market sector, these renewable energy businesses that we advise have had no shortage of opportunity to find the capital that they need from the private market sector. Right. Got it. So, Nika, how are you seeing it then? When you look at this broader, somewhat turbulent financial backdrop, then what have the implications been for Aligned Climate Capital? Yeah. So a lot of our investments are either in infrastructure, primarily in building out renewable generation and um, in the early stage investing space. So most of my investments are seed to series B startups. For us, we're not really taking as much of a science risk. So we're coming into tech that's commercial and really focused on scaling it. As I had mentioned earlier, that sometimes when people are thinking about solar or community solar, it doesn't seem as particularly sexy in terms of it being a proven tech versus something quite novel. But we've actually seen that it is quite sexy because people are looking for certainty in the market. So although you're not seeing you know, the large IPOs, as Sam has mentioned, there's been a huge amount of activity as it relates to the acquisition of solar and renewable generation developers. And even now, as we're looking to back early stage developers, 
we're seeing a lot of people who might have not have been as interested in that space really thinking about how do I create uh, value in these assets that are going to have long term duration. On top of that, you know, we're in not just a market environment, but a societal environment where the effects of climate change are very present in people's day to day lives. If you flicker on any of the news channels, you'll hear about floods and wildfires and all of those things. So on the early stage side, I think there is a big rush to catch up on the investment that should have happened long ago. So that's where you'll see a lot more people coming into things like, you know, synthetic biology and an effort to recreate some of the chemicals that go into processes. We're seeing a lot of interest in things like microgrids to support some of the grid turbulence that's happening. We're seeing a lot of interest in technology that's going to be ready either today or further down the line. Now, I don't think the valuations are where they were last year. I will say that that's a little bit lower as people are getting a bit more conservative and how quickly they're expecting these companies to exit. But that is interesting, though, which, uh, as you say, if you're investing in these very proven technologies, quite well-established businesses, that's exactly the kind of thing that investors are looking for at the moment because they want to essentially uh, reduce the risk they're exposed to. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, we've had people talk to us about our fund and say that we like to think of you as a, a hedge for the market because, you know, we're going to need all sorts of technology. And, you know, when things are tight as they are kind of in the global markets, especially with what's happening in Europe, I think that any place where you can find a little bit of stability, um, you really lean into. Sam, what do you think? Are you seeing the same sort of thing, that kind of uh, flight away from risk and towards safety? Yeah, we're seeing a mix of both. And certainly in terms of just sheer quantum of dollars being put to work, where we are focused, it is in the infrastructure sector versus the early stage you know, seed capital. We are seeing, though, if we focus for a minute on utility scale, renewable energy generation, we are seeing now and, and have seen for the last several years an increasing risk appetite that is driven by a very high competitiveness at the operating project level. And so investors that typically would look to acquire de-risked operating infrastructure assets that are you know, core or core plus infrastructure investors have gotten more comfortable with the development risk of these projects. Now, that is in part due to just the nature of the sector maturing and advancing. It is also in part due to the, the search for extra return out of these otherwise very competitive assets. And on the valuation side, you know, last year, there was a significant number of transactions in the renewable energy sector, some of which traded at valuations that were unprecedented. We are seeing for high quality businesses that have an exceptional management team, that have a really proven track record, and that have a pretty sizable and diversified portfolio, both in terms of technology and geography of infrastructure connected assets. The premium valuations that we saw last year are also being seen this year. 
And that's been the fundamental shift in renewable energy and energy transition M&A is a platform value approach that is really focused on a company or a team's ability to continue capturing incremental market share against the backdrop of an overall increasing total addressable market, which is undeniable in the US. If you compare that to valuations for platforms that are operating in renewable energy five, seven, 10 years ago, it was very much a bottoms up approach where there was significant focus placed on the identified portfolio of assets, the assets that were either operating in construction, contracted, or or very close to being contracted. Whereas over the last 24 months, there have been investors that have ascribed a run rate perpetuity-like multiple to these businesses, with the thesis being the sector as a general matter will absorb the cost increases that we've seen over the last 12 to 24 months. And the deployment of wind and solar, both utility scale and behind the meter distributed generation, uh, CNI and community solar, will just continue to grow. And so if you're a renewable energy company that's deploying assets into that sector and you can point to a steady to increasing market share, the valuation environment and the capital that you have access to is not limitless, but it's quite significant. And that's still the same today as it was a year ago, let's say. It's still the same today as it was a year ago. Investors are being more careful with diligence. They are being more cautious with underwriting that platform value approach, but the platform value approach is still available. And sorry, just to be absolutely clear what you mean by that, the platform value approach means what? In today's valuation environment, investors are giving credit to a company's ability to continue into perpetuity. And so ascribing value to unidentified development projects, ascribing value to an entity's ability to capture incremental market share in the future. We can align on from any number of public forecasts as a sector, how much wind and solar will be deployed in the United States over the next 10 to 15 years. The platform value approach is meant to capture the value that these businesses are being ascribed for unidentified ability to grow into a market share in the future and develop and deploy projects that do not exist today. And that approach is still working despite the turmoil in the markets that we're seeing. It is still working despite the turmoil in the markets that we're seeing. That's exactly right. And look, again, on an absolute basis, these cost increases are real. PV grade polysilicon has more than quadrupled. Steel has increased by 50%. Copper is rising by around 70%. Aluminum is increasing in cost. For onshore wind, the shipping and freight costs are increasing. And so the LCOE trend that I mentioned earlier that has seen a decline over the last 10 years, we've seen a reversal of that over the last 24 months. But I think the important footnote on that statement is that these cost increases can be significant in absolute terms for project-specific economics. But with the increasing capacity factors, the advances in technologies, the improved net generation and output, these renewable energy uh, generation technologies, our perspective is that they will continue to be cost competitive vis-a-vis -vis fossil fuels 
which have their own inflection points, which are you know seeing cost increases themselves. So, Neka, what do you think in terms of that trend of investors still uh, having confidence in that long-term story about the potential growth of renewable energy and investing on that basis, valuing businesses on that basis? Is that also what you're seeing? Absolutely. Now, in the short term, we're seeing all the same things that Sam's talking about, delays in terms of supply chain, you know, all those things that make building hard for everyone. But at the end of the day, things like the IRA that have really pushed a spotlight into manufacturing and really reiterating the need for all of these kind of base materials um, are going to allow for those constraints to be minimized in the future. But I think that the arc of the market is going to continue in that way. In the short term, it might look different, though. I want to come on to talk about the the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, in a moment, because I do think that's very important in this context. Before I do, one specific thought about interest rates. One of the ways I've always thought about investment in renewable energy in particular is that a really important raw material for renewable energy is money, in that because you have lower operating costs, essentially, because you're not paying for fuel, more of the cost is uh, in the capital uh, investment cost, and therefore the cost of financing is crucial to the economics of a project as a whole. And so when interest rates go up, that's, as a general rule, bad news for renewable energy and for renewable energy costs. Is that something you're seeing, Sam? Do you think that higher level of interest rates is having an effect and deterring some investment into renewable energy? Like commodity pricing, like input costs, like transportation costs, interest rates and the availability of financing, particularly debt financing, is an important factor for the deployment and the construction of these very large and very capital intensive infrastructure assets. However, we are still seeing many transactions getting completed. We are still seeing assets being financed. So yes, as a general matter, rising interest rates is impacting the evaluation of these infrastructure assets, but we are not seeing a slowdown in deployment of projects or of capital. Now, one thing we've talked about quite a bit on this show in recent months is something I don't know if you've got a view on, but uh, SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, which had a kind of a flaring up of interest, I guess, sort of 2020 and 21, um, huge enthusiasm for them as vehicles for low carbon energy businesses to come to the stock market. That flow seems to have dried up very largely this year. Wondering if you have thoughts on that. Is is that a, a kind of a significant issue in terms of kind of capital inflows into the low carbon energy industry? Is the fact that apparently the SPAC route is not available to people anymore? Is that significant? So our perspective is that a SPAC is an alternative route to the public markets. Entities that have a perception of being public market ready should evaluate whether an IPO or a SPAC is the best route for them. Our perspective is and was last year in the height of the so-called SPAC frenzy, 
was that if a company was not prepared to IPO themselves, they should uh, not be prepared to SPAC themselves. So that's, I think, a general comment R relative to your question on or, or your perspective on has that cooled or, or has that activity slowed down? The answer is yes, certainly. Now, some of that is due to the public markets volatility that we touched on earlier. Some of that is due to the performance of companies that SPAC last year relative to where they are trading now. But I would assume that most of the slowdown in the SPAC market is not specific to the SPAC market and is more correlated with public market volatility. Right. And those same trends you've been talking about before. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. Nick, do you have any thoughts on SPACs? Yeah, I think that Sam and I are pretty aligned on this one. I think that the way that SPACs were sometimes dangled in front of earlier stage companies was as if it's an opportunity to make a quicker exit than they had been prepared to, especially those that had been relatively capital intensive and needed a lot more capital to scale. The reality was that many of the companies weren't as ready. Um, and then additionally, there is the complexity of, of a merger and a lot of the specs were roll-ups and ensuring that those sorts of mergers are accretive. And then you layer the spec on top, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, things that founders and companies were juggling. So I think they obviously have a purpose in the market. And I think they'll kind of ramp up slowly once we're seeing a lot more growth equity stage, clean energy companies. So now look, something else I'm keen to talk about. Uh, Nika, you just mentioned the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. This was the law um, signed by President Biden in August, had quite a number of provisions, including expansion and extension of tax credits for all kinds of low carbon energy, for wind and solar, for storage, for hydrogen, nuclear. And as we discussed a few times on the show, that uh, the thinking behind that bill was to stimulate increased investment into low carbon energy to help meet US climate goals. And we, would McKinsey have done forecasting showing that it, we expect it to create very significant increases, for instance, in the amount of uh, investment in wind and solar and storage in the US. I'm interested to get both of your perspectives on whether you're already starting to see it have any effect. As I say, we've got these projections showing that it's going to have a lot of impact over the next 10 years. When you talk to investors, potential investors, about low-carbon energy businesses, is the Inflation Reduction Act already something that is very much kind of uh, front of mind for people and is something that is helping determine their decisions? And I mean, can you even point to specific investments and say this is something that is going ahead because of the IRA that would not have gone ahead if the IRA had not passed? I mean, Neka, how are you seeing it? Yeah. So I think the IRA got a lot of people very excited. There are provisions in there that are going to drop the levelized cost of energy of certain projects by, you know, more than 20%. There's also provisions in there that are really around driving, I don't call it behavior change, but it's really uh, incentivizing certain behaviors. So when we're thinking about our electric vehicle business, we know that that infrastructure is, we already had intentions of it, you know, being really valuable, but now kind of accelerated the adoption curve 
of electric vehicles. So we know that that's going to be incredibly beneficial for our portfolio. In terms of all the things it can do, it's great to have guidance from the government in terms of like, you know, how we want to spend this money. At the same time, we also know that sometimes government can be inefficient. So I'm I'm very curious to see how everything will be rolled out and deployed. I know that there's already been a lot of feedback from the environmental justice community about how the money that was set aside for environmental justice has a large provision of it that's really focused on direct carbon capture and the things that we say we're investing in on the top end might look very different when the money trickles down. But overall, I think the IRA is great because what we want to do, and when we see the title of this is like it's a Inflation Reduction Act, it's really about stimulating business within the United States. So there are a couple companies that I've had my eyes on that probably would have had a longer path to cash flow positivity that with the IRA, they're in the money today. So that's exciting. And that's tech that, like I said, is market ready. I know talking to other investors and talking to other startups whose tech is maybe one step earlier where we typically invest, they're getting tons of inbound interests because their tech went from being kind of a fringe technology or a fringe solution to all of a sudden being, you know, market ready a lot faster. What do you think, Sam? Are you starting to see the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act already on the ground? Without question, we are. And we're seeing it in a few different perspectives. The first being at the utility scale project level, you know, PPAs that were signed last year for projects and PPA being the power purchase agreement or revenue contract for utility scale generation asset that were signed last year saw some pretty challenged economic returns given the subsequent supply chain disorganization, the cost increases. So the first thing that we saw an immediate impact of the IRA do is via the extension of the tax credits, help those projects become more attractive from an IRR perspective. The second impact that we are noticing right away from the IRA are on these large scale developer owners and operators. The IRA, we expect, will open up incremental development and project opportunities for them and create more opportunity to deploy more projects. Now, that being said, we still need guidance on what, for example, will qualify for domestic content because that could have the multiplier there could have a pretty interesting economic impact. Yeah, just to clarify that point, then that's about if you use American made equipment, turbines, whatever it might be, you can get more generous tax credits, right? Exactly right. You get a multiplier on the standard tax credit, which makes the project a more valuable project, easier to finance, more likely to get built. The third area that we are really focused on from an IRA perspective outside of utility scale wind and solar generation are the ancillary sectors that touch the entire circular energy transition or green energy economy. One in particular is onshore or U.S. domestic solar manufacturing. We are having multiple conversations in that regard with folks that are industry participants that are 
seeking to build domestic manufacturing facilities, which is enabled by IRA legislation and tax credits. The other area that is interesting to watch is the hydrogen sector and the impacts that the IRA might have on the ability to commercialize and deploy green hydrogen. So in sum, Ed, yes, the IRA we think is going to have a pretty significant impact on the future of our clean energy economy, and we are starting to see some of that uh, immediately. So question, though, what happens as the political landscape changes? Um, Obviously, it's always a concern if you are uh, building businesses based on government support of whatever kind, the grants, tax credits, whatever it might be. And we're about to have uh, midterm elections in this country uh, next month. There's a good chance Republicans will take control of the House, maybe the Senate as well. Who knows? They have expressed strong opposition to a lot of the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, obviously, very hard to predict what's going to happen to the presidential election in 2024, but it's quite possible there'll be a change of administration then. Um, So, question, uh, how much certainty can anyone have about these various provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act lasting? And what effect does that have on investment, on companies, on investors, if people think there's a danger that these tax credits may look very uh, generous and supportive at the moment, but they may not last? Is that something which is acting as a deterrent to people and is actually holding back some investment that would otherwise go ahead? What do you think, Sam? Are you seeing that? In theory, the perspective that you've just laid out is, is a rational one. In practice, we are not seeing a slowdown of capital being deployed in the sector. So I don't think that investors are underwriting investments, assuming that there is a fundamental negative shift away from supportive policy. And circling back to our levelized cost of energy analysis, another key takeaway from the report over the last several years is even outside of subsidies, renewable energy technologies are cost competitive with fossil fuel generation technologies. This episode of The Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Atachi Energy's own podcast, Power Pulse where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems to advance a sustainable energy future for all. Recent episodes focus on opportunities for offshore wind in the U.S., the unique contributions of women to the energy industry, and the challenge of meeting EV fleet charging demand. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash PowerPulse. That's a great way, I think, to leave that discussion and move on for it. But just before I do... Neka, your thoughts on that then? So put all these influences together. What's happening in the markets? What's happening politically? How does this leave you feeling about prospects for continued growth in investment in low-carbon energy and getting on a trajectory that the US needs to be on, that the world needs to be on to meet climate goals? I think it makes me feel positive. I think when we turn on the news, we're hearing about all these crises that are happening all over the world, whether that is famine or war or flooding. And then you hear news like the IEA announcing that our increase in CO2 emissions from fossil fuels 
are growing just slightly. Obviously, we want them to decrease significantly. But a lot of that is because of the work that we've all been doing over the last few years and reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. So all this renewable technology, all these reimagining agricultural practices, all the things that we're actively working on today is slowly making a change. But I do believe in the snowball effects that you know, once we layer on, you know, policy on top of the exponential change that's happening in tech availability, we're going to see a much bigger reduction if we continue to have all hands on deck. Thank you. That's that's really a great way to look at it, I think. Now, the final thing I wanted to talk about today is a subject that you brought up, Nika, when we were talking earlier before we started recording about the question of Uh, climate adaptation and resilience. A lot of what we've been talking about, a lot of what we usually talk about on this show is about what you call climate mitigation. Um, In other words, cutting greenhouse gas emissions in order to uh, prevent the worst impacts of climate change. The science makes it very clear that there is a very important role for adaptation, building societies and economies that are able to cope and minimize harm as we experience global warming, global warming that we know is inevitable, and also obviously risks of even worse outcomes potentially. It's uh, an issue that's often talked about as resilience, but although it's hugely important, as I was saying, it does often get less attention than climate mitigation. It gets less attention in the debate, and it gets less attention, I think, specifically from investors to the extent that people think about climate adaptation and resilience. It's often thought about as something that governments do. Uh, There was an interesting release from the um, Biden administration just uh, out last week with a long list of things, like more than 20 things that the administration is doing in terms of spending money and its money running into the tens of billions of dollars to um, improve the resilience of federal infrastructure and other assets as the climate changes. My question though is, what is the role for the private sector there? And is there something which the private sector can do in terms of strengthening resilience and helping money flow towards this very important issue of climate adaptation, as well as or alongside what governments are doing? Neka, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So I think when, you know, a firm like mine, when we're going to our investments, we need to hit an investment multiple when we're exiting. So every time we make an investment, we try to see, you know, what is the capital efficiency of this investment outside of how phenomenal the teams are, the technology is. And historically, some of the traditional resilience plays don't necessarily have an exit opportunity for a venture investor to make money. However, I think the industry is looking at different ways for us to kind of monetize best practices for our communities. So if you see some of the recent findings that have come out after the California wildfires, you see that the CO2 emitted in these wildfires is huge, so huge that it might have offset a large percentage of the decarbonization work that the state of California has already done. So 
focusing on resilience or figuring out a way where we can kind of monetize these practices is putting that patch in the bucket. I've seen some really interesting ways that different institutions are trying to figure it out. I've heard of large utilities actively deploying microgrids in areas that are particularly rural or expensive for them to serve uh, with their traditional distribution and transmission model. And that one ends up being a win-win because you have a lower cost to serve the customers, which ultimately hopefully results in lower electricity bills for them, but also a level of reliability of electricity for these customers. So after the horrible hurricanes, Ian and Fiona, there also some information that came out that there were communities that actually weren't as negatively affected as their neighboring counties because they had those microgrids. We've seen on the opposite side, kind of insurance companies come into this as well. So for insurers or large asset owners who have buildings or properties that are oceanside or alongside the water, we've also seen them investing in technology that supports wetland restoration or coral reef restoration. I mean, yes, because it's great for the environment, but also because it means that the useful life of their asset is likely to be increased if there's more protection against future storms. Their asset being what in that case? So it could be anything from a port or a hotel, all those oh, sorts of things. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard about that happening yet. And so you say sort of traditional resilience activities have been difficult to monetize. What kind of things come into that category then? A lot of things that come to mind when I first think of resilience are very local and community focused. So when I say hard to monetize, um, one, there is an ickiness factor of trying to make money off disaster recovery, right? But also the complexity of what each community needs. So the people who are recovering from a hurricane in Puerto Rico need different things from the people who are recovering from a wildfire in the Pacific Northwest. And there isn't, you know, one or two technologies that are going to be the end-all be-all for either of those solutions. So you end up with a lot more directed tech or support systems. Um, additionally, the tech that might make sense, like um, I immediately think about the resilience pods that I've seen come up where it's essentially a microgrid in a box or... Um, energy generation, usually diesel power generators, but a lot more kind of clean energy generators being brought on site. The levelized cost of energy of those are quite, quite higher than, you know, other sorts of renewable energy. And it doesn't make sense always to use them in a non-emergency context. So a lot of times focus on resiliency investments have been really directed at specific instances. But if we're thinking about and knock on wood that we're we're going to see less extreme weather, which all the models say that that's not the case, it's going to be less about a once in you know a twenty year use case and probably closer to a once in a three year use case. So all of a sudden, some of those investments go from being a one off expensive investment to being used more regularly. So it opens up the opportunity for modularity in scale in a way that there hasn't been before. 
given then, as you say, there are these challenges to private sector involvement in a lot of this investment in resilience, are these challenges that can be overcome or are there going to be some issues that are always insuperable and that always mean that the private sector is going to have to stay out of these areas and it's really going to be only governments that can actually step in and deal with some of the problems that emerge because of climate change? The way I think about it is that you can pay for these things now or you're going to pay for them later. Additionally, we have no clue what the future holds. So for me, I think that we've seen government pick up the costs after a disaster. So we think about FEMA, but there needs to be this deployment of the resilience 2.0 kind of mindset. So traditional resilience is really around how do we make sure that people have what they need so that they can you know, bounce back more easily. But the resilience 2.0, I think, really leads into how do we harden resilience? How do we get better after each instance? You know, the way that we expect AI and machine learning to do for our technology, is there a capacity for us to get better at protecting our communities? Is there a way that it's not just building up a seawall, which is great, but we can figure out a way that we can turn kind of a negative into a positive. I do not have the answers there, but I'm very curious and I, I want to learn more about how this evolves. Yeah, agreed. That is a really fascinating issue, isn't it? As you it'll be very interesting to see how that develops and what innovations come up in that area. Sam, what do you think? Is this something that you're involved in, in at Lazard? Do you actually end up getting involved in investment for resilience or is this just not really something that's on your radar at the moment resiliency is a business model it, it is a use case you know there are companies that are are trying to find ways to scale there are companies that are already scaled businesses whose focus is on resiliency um, you know each year we sponsor uh, an event that is focused on disruptive technologies that are combating global warming. And each of those startup-like entities is focused on resiliency. And it has created a variety of different business models. A variety of different entrepreneurs have created technologies and use cases that are monetizable. There is enough capital and there are enough businesses out there that can be matched together at the right time that reversing global warming and capitalism can coexist. We suspect, given how much capital has been raised across very broadly defined the ESG sector, that, uh, and by definition, the capital that has been raised has to be put to work. And we suspect that doing that in large infrastructure projects will continue but also doing that in disruptive technologies, disruptive business models, including those focused on resiliency, will continue. That's a, a great point, Sam. And I think when I was talking about resilience, I was really thinking about like kind of that nature resilience, but I think grid resilience is something that's come up a ton. And we were focused on the duck curve for a while and trying to figure out how we don't overwhelm the grid. 
Uh, and now people are talking about the Falcon curve, where if we're building out all of this clean energy infrastructure, what's going to happen when we hit these winter peaks? And that is another set of investments that we can make, whether that's building efficiency, storage, et cetera, to add to, you know, the other sort of resiliency crisis we're going to get if we're very successful in our current kind of tranche of funding and projects. So just for people who might not know, the, the duck curve is the shape of power demand, typically seen in California and other places with a lot of solar power, right, where power demand goes down in the middle of the day when consumers are generating their own solar power from rooftop solar panels, basically, right? What, that's right, isn't it? So then question, what is the falcon curve you just mentioned? I've not heard of that one. So the falcon curve is relatively new. Uh, there's a couple of researchers like uh, Joseph Allen that have been talking about it. And it really shows that a lot of winter electricity demand is really heavily dependent on natural gas, uh, in particular places that have extreme cold weather, like the Midwest and the Northeast. However, if you look at where kind of renewable generation is dedicated, it's really around wind and solar power that don't particularly help the grid in the same way in the winter in these regions. So we're going to have a really big gap in when people are using electricity and natural gas in the winters if we're not focused on electrifying buildings at the same rate as we're building out our generation. So it will be all this great solar and wind, but also we'll have massive buildings that still have historic plumbing and heating systems, unfortunately. That is very interesting. And so when you think about resilience and the ways that resilience can be investable, that point about the grid, strengthening the grid, supporting the grid to keep it reliable through these different changing weather conditions and so on, that's a classic example of that. Totally. And we're seeing a lot more heat pumps, uh, you know, going into commercial properties, not just residential, looking at different ways that we can speed up electrification for big buildings. I know in New York, they have um, mandates like Local Law 97 that are supporting that. And, you know, that's another way that government, you know, influences investment in the short term. And that's going to be really interesting to watch that transition. That is very interesting, as you say. So now we just about um, have to leave there, I'm afraid. But um, before we go, of course, we have the tradition of the free electrons, things that we've all brought in that are sort of personal to us that we want to talk about. Sam, what have you got? So in, in addition to having a deep personal belief that transitioning to a cleaner economy is not only necessary, but important. Uh, my other personal passion is racial equality, which is also quite personal to me. You know, my wife is an African-American. I have biracial children. And, um, you know, over the last several years in the United States, it's been a, a, a topic that has received a lot of attention. And so my free electron is that there, there must be continued self-education there must be a continued desire to have uncomfortable conversations, and uh, including one of my one of my all time most recommended books, "Between the World and Me," is a necessary, I think, read uh, in in the world in which we're living. That is a great point. That's Tana Hasekotes wrote that book. 
I'm a big fan of journalism. I ne I've never read that book, but I must read it. It is, yes. It's Mr. Coates. And it is, again, I think, on my must-read list for, for just about everybody. Thanks very much indeed. That's a great thought. Nika, what's yours? For me, um, my free electron is really kind of on the opposite point of this. And I, I love that you brought that on, Sam, that really thinking about the space that we're investing in as intersectional and thinking about who all gets to have the benefit of um, the success of all the investments in the infrastructure bill, uh, but also making sure that people are aware of their ability to participate in this process. I know that, you know, as much stakeholder engagement that they started doing, a lot of voices weren't necessarily heard in the final parts of the bill. So I just wanted to share that for those who are interested, the IRS has an open comment period for the tax credits associated with the IRA until November 4th. So for people who sometimes feel like big feels like government moves without us, please take this time to comment um, if you can, um, as well as your, you know, local government uh, elections are coming up. So as much as all of us are working hard in our day to day and our side hustles uh, to ensure that we are an active part of this political process so that we get more bills that support more sorts of technology and more people really working towards a, a better future for all of us. Thanks very much for that. So mine is a possibly less profound than either of yours, but it's something I've been interested in and something I'm interested actually to hear your views on, which is it's a word, the word being polycrisis, which is a word I'd never heard before up until about six weeks ago, and now suddenly seems to be everywhere and everyone's talking about it. And as a former a colleague of mine, I used to work at the Financial Times, former colleague of mine from there, very smart woman called Kate McKenzie, who's been writing something called it's the Polycrisis Project. She's been um, talking about this. Several other people have been talking about it. The idea being that we're living through a series of interlocking crises at the moment. There's a climate crisis, but there's also a water crisis and a food crisis and a security crisis and a crisis of democracy and so on and so forth, which I think is an interesting idea and a certainly sort of stimulating thing to think about. I wonder if it's actually helpful or not. And I don't know if you've come across this word or you think it's useful. I just wonder if there's a tendency then to kind of think it's a polycrisis, everything's terrible. Um, oh no, you know, it's whether it seems overwhelming. I, th I think certainly it's useful and interesting and important to think about the way that different crises and different phenomena, security, climate, water, the ways that they interact with each other. That I'm absolutely convinced by. Is it useful to talk about a polycrisis, to think about a polycrisis? I'm not sure. What do you think? I think uh, polycrisis is a good word to describe um, the systemic challenges that we have. One of my favorite words um, for that sort of situation is a wicked problem where, you know, there's endless solutions, but also that problem is symptom of other problems and it's greatly intertwined. But the reality of it is that, you know, you have to start at one point place and test, iterate, and try, try again. As they say, the best way to eat an elephant is uh, bite by bite. So 
good line, good line. Yeah, no, I do agree with that. I think maybe polycrisis implies maybe there's going to be a poly solution, which certainly we should not expect, but maybe some limited, partial, local solutions are going to be the way forward. There's going to be lots of answers to the problems we face. And yeah, as you say, breaking them down into their, into their constituent parts might be a good way to start approaching that. So thanks very much for that. Thanks very much, uh, Necker. Thank you, Sam. Hope we can have you both back again soon. Hopefully we won't leave it more than a year next time, Necker, before you're back again on the Energy Gang. And uh, thank you both very much indeed for, for coming today. Thanks also to our producers, Shigeru Perez and Toby Begins-Gilchrist. And above all, thanks very much to all of you for listening. As usual, we're keen to know what you think. Please do give us your comments, suggestions, criticism, anything you want to say, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. A good way to get hold of us is on Twitter. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. So do please get in touch. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.